Hello everyone, it's January 6th, 2024, so Vulcan Centaur had a perfect launch and payload deployment of the Peregrine lander. Peregrine, however, ran into a problem, and it's looking like the culprit is a bad valve. When is it not a valve? Well, sometimes, but valves in space are a pain, so let's talk about what this one did, and lift off. And we've got the Tower Welcome to episode 442 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And Dennis is currently moving. <laughs> Yeah. Which, you know, is kind of sad because uh, I don't know how much of this the listeners hear, but there's the sound of the trolley and other various background noises <laughs> that you will no longer be hearing, at least I assume. We can we can go into the audio archives and pull out a good sample of that trolley, and I'll just put it on a soundboard and, and play it randomly. Yeah, <laughs> there you it's, go. It was comforting. But anyway, I hear you also have a game recommendation. Yeah. So I think I saw this recommendation on Mastodon. Uh, some random person I don't follow, but who is in my federated feed link to it. And I'd never heard about it. It's called Starship Simulator. Their website is starshipsimulator.co.uk. It's a single developer uh, working on this game. And so it's in a really, really early alpha version. There's not a lot of content. Um, and there's only one model of ship and it's not even complete. There are places where you can go where like, you just get dumped into a black inky void and like you can see like cross sections of floors, like the floor and the ceiling of the decks above and below you that are just kind of end and you're just kind of in this. It's almost like as if it was like a shuttle bay, but it's not, it's mm-hmm. not like there are some places where you can almost get trapped. There's a couple of places where you can actually fall out of the ship, but Starship Simulator is, does have a demo up which is really, really cool for something this early. And it's basically a Starfleet game, right? It's the, the imagery is very reminiscent of, of uh, Star Trek. And the idea is that it's a full ship that takes multiple people to run and you can go on adventures, uh, with friends and like, it's it's so up my alley, and I think both you and Dennis honestly would enjoy it. But it's it's really really early. Like I'm I'm kind of shocked that there's a demo this early. But it seems like it's going to be a lot of fun when you can get a good couple of people together and just run a ship and go explore. And the the idea is that the base game will always be free, but then you can pay for DLC to do stories, um, and go uh, make contact with intelligent species. And like run first contact missions and, you know, that kind of thing. And like it just, it seems like it would be a heck of a lot of fun because you would have people in different parts of the ship doing different things, you know, somebody doing science, somebody navigating, somebody doing engineering and keeping the, the engines running. Like it, ju- it just sounds mm-hmm. like it would be a lot of fun. Uh, if, if it gets to the scale that the developer wants, but they post a lot of like dev diary stuff and I, I, oof. It's hard. I don't, I don't think it's certain that they're going to succeed, but I think they're doing a really good job so far. In the news, a Peregrine failure. So uh, I guess this happened just after we recorded the last episode, right? So we didn't get to talk about it. But uh, we had a successful Vulcan launch, not so successful Peregrine. Uh, the separation went well, as far as I understand. Yep. But then something went wrong after that, shortly yeah. after that. So what happened? And so, yeah, this was like Monday, the day after we recorded the last episode. Yeah. So first, I wanted to start out with a quote from John Thornton uh, after they realized they had an issue. Uh, John Thornton, the chief executive of Astrobotic, 
said that, you know, lunar landers have a historic success rate of 50%. And I think that's a good perspective to approach this from. So first, uh, before I get to the failure, I wanted to do a real quick recap of the, the Vulcan launch. Um, so Vulcan has got two BE4s for its first stage and two Gem 63XLs strapped onto the sides for this configuration. And this would be the first orbital launch of a BE4, I believe. The rocket launched successfully. It put uh, Peregrine into a translunar uh, injection orbit just fine. And then it actually did a, a, another restart, uh, boosting the uh, Centaur 5 upper stage into a heliocentric orbit. This was partially just for the qualification, I guess, of, of Centaur 5, like, hey, look, we can do this. But also there were some extra payloads on there from Celestis Memorial, uh, so some uh, ashes and DNA samples uh, from uh, people who had died and their families wanted to uh, memorialize them, memorialize them all the way into sun, sun orbit. Okay, so after the separation, just like you said, is when the issue came up. So uh, Peregrine had a successful uh, activation uh, sequence where they, you know, went and turned everything on and deployed the solar rays. Actually, I'm not sure that the solar rays deploy. I believe they're fixed. Um, but, you know, they, they got everything up and running and they're on their own power and they're doing their own uh, pointing to point the solar panels at the sun. And then they brought up the propulsion systems and they had a successful uh, propulsion system activation. But shortly afterwards, they experienced an anomaly and they kind of went, okay, guys, we're working this anomaly. Give us a bit. Um, I'm going to cut to the chase and tell you what we believe happened, uh, what, what the, the company has said so far. So the idea is that there was really early, it was obvious that there was a failure that happened in the propulsion system. And then they saw what they called a critical loss of propellant. So, uh, enough propellant loss that very quickly on, um, Astrobotic said, you know, we're not going to make it to the moon this time. And what they believe the failure mode was is there are, of course, uh, fuel and oxidizer tanks and they have to be pressurized. So there are separate helium tanks that they can bleed into the fuel and oxidizer tanks slowly to keep those big tanks up to pressure. Well, during initialization, they opened the helium valves. And it looks like the oxidizer tank valve didn't close all the way. And so it sounds like a small amount of helium kept flowing through that valve to the point where the oxidizer tank pressure went high enough to actually rupture the tank. So the way that they initially said or described the issue was uh, a pressure spike. And whenever I hear the word spike, I always think of a rapid increase and a rapid decrease. But in space, a lot of the time, that's not the way that people use that word. They actually just mean a high, like a spike could be a, a, a tall hill, right? Rather than uh, you know, the, the pointy bit at the top of a, of a building. Like it, it can be a slowish increase and then a maximum temp, a maximum value and then a, uh, a decrease after that. And so like 
my initial impression was that they open and close the valves to test, and then they have some sort of burst disk uh, that actually connects the two systems. And so because the valve wasn't closed when they connected the two systems, there was this huge rush of pressure that spiked and, and popped the tank. But I don't think that's actually true. I think they just, you know, the the valves and the pipes are small enough that the maximum amount of flow leads to a, a long period of time where that flow is happening so that they can open the valves 100% and add pressure to the tanks over time and then they close it all the way rather than you know opening it a, a teeny teeny tiny amount just to get the the slow you know leak almost kind of a <laughs> insensitive word to use in this case but yeah so e- either way the the oxidizer tank is believed to have been ruptured this was a propulsive vent. So, uh, you know, we talk about non-propulsive vents where they design, uh, parts on the spaceship that let you dump usually gas overboard without pushing the spacecraft around. But because this is a tear in the tank, the air, the oxidizer that's leaking out is actually pushing the vehicle out of its desired alignment. It's starting to rotate the thing. Is this like a small rupture, like maybe a seam, like barely came apart or something, and so it's a slow leak? Or is there just no oxygen on board, but they still have the ability to, or they still have some left over? Because I'm just not sure how you have a ruptured tank, but still have oxidizer. Yeah. So so first off, it's, it's yeah, oxidizer, not oxygen. We want to be clear about that. Um, oxidizer, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're exactly right. This is not a balloon pop situation. This is, I, I would imagine, a seam pulling apart. Maybe it's in the middle of a panel, but I think it's probably at a seam somewhere. And yeah, it is a slow leak. And we will talk more about that in a second. So as this leak is happening, they're getting pushed away from the sun. And in fact, they said that their the battery fell to operationally low levels, which I interpret as very low, but still keeping the spacecraft alive, not, you know, like in, endangering the ability to be operational, not not like below an op- operational level or lower than operational levels, I guess. So at this point, this is pretty early on and they were approaching a known communications blackout. I think the issue is that they only have access to the vehicle uh, from some locations on Earth. They don't have uh, full DSN access. So their base station is rotating around and they're not going to be able to see the spacecraft until the next base station comes up. So they, they have this blackout and they were actually able to get um, what they called an improvised maneuver uploaded to the spacecraft that was able to get the uh, solar rays pointed at the sun and the batteries charging. And it was still in that state when they uh, made contact with the vehicle again. I, I'm imagining that because this is a fairly slow leak from some other clues as well. I, th- I think what's happening here is that the RCS thrusters on board, or they, they actually call them the ACS, the attitude control system, but the, the attitude thrusters are able to keep up with this leak, but the control software isn't. Um, they want to make sure they don't spend fuel too quickly. And so they've got rate limits and things in place. And so it sounds like the the software wasn't happy to keep pushing the thrusters hard enough um, to overcome this leak. 
but it is pushing them in an attempt to mitigate it. So I think this improvised maneuver was basically, which direction do we have to tell the vehicle to point? And let's tell it to point there as hard as it can and just bump the spacecraft up. And then it will drift back slowly down. So if we overshoot the sun, uh, we'll drift back across the sun and that'll be good enough until we get contact again. Then we can work on something new. At this point, um, they were starting to get data down from the vehicle that was more than just the basic telemetry. So they, they got a photo from one of the uh, cameras on board and it kind of confirmed their suspicion that, you know, this overpressure or rupture event had happened. The multi-layer insulation should have been relatively smooth, but in the photo, it was pretty wrinkly. So I'm assuming that this means that there was just gas that was trapped under there and kind of deformed it. Yeah, that's, that was my interpretation as well. So they, uh, get this image down and they're kind of starting to go, yeah, we, we think we have a pretty good grasp on what's going on here. So I'm assuming that at this point they've characterized the propulsion, uh, from the leak well enough, um, that they're able to actually update their control software, um, probably just setting a, f- a few values higher <laughs> saying, okay, you're allowed to push harder in this direction. Um, and they get that up and that is, that's able to stabilize the vehicle's power and, and keep it pointed at the sun. Now, of course, at this point, they are leaking or they're, they're dumping propellant overboard very, very quickly. Part of it through the thrusters and part of it through the hole in the oxidizer tank. Um, so it's, it's kind of a worst, worst of both worlds kind of situation, uh, pushing harder to overcome this rotational force. But it's really important to do that because if you're going to, keep the vehicle surviving, you need to have power. And if you let a leak like this go, you can often wind up in a tumble. And um, one of their press release updates, many press releases uh, on Twitter said that they were indeed uh, fighting to make sure that they didn't wind up in a tumble, that they like an unrecoverable tumble. One of the interesting things about this new control algorithm is that it asks the thrusters to turn on more often than they were intended. Um, there's this life cycle that's like, well, may- maybe I've misinterpreted. So my first impression was that when they said that they had exceeded their expected life cycles, my first impression was that they had exceeded their expected duty cycle, which would be how much of the time the thruster is on and how much of it it's off, like this ratio. And exceeding your expected duty cycle or rated duty cycle is a bad thing. It means that the thrusters are going to get hotter uh, than their heat dissipation systems can um, can handle. And, you know, you're going to wind up burning your thrusters out uh, or or doing damage to nearby electronics or something like that. But actually, now that I think uh, about the story as a whole, they're saying life cycle, which would suggest on-off cycles. And it's really interesting that they would have exceeded this uh, so quickly because the vehicle was intended to go around the moon twice, right? It's in a, it's currently in a, a, a lunar transfer orbit where it's going all the way up to lunar altitude, but it was going to be coming back. It was going to do this first orbit, uh, waiting for the moon to catch up. And then they go, come back down around earth and then whip back out on that second pass. They would actually be, uh, capturing around the moon because the moon was actually there to meet them. And so they're going to be in space for a while. Yeah. While they're in space, they're not really going to be using the RCS very much, but then while they're landing, they're, 
they're going to be spending whatever, like seven to 10 minutes, uh, using those thrusters almost continually bumping back and forth and making sure that they, uh, are pointing in exactly the right direction. So I don't know. It's, it's kind of surprising that they would have exceeded the, you know, the life cycle, the on off, but, uh, maybe the, the algorithm updates that they did wound up firing these thrusters much more rapidly than, than they might have otherwise done. It's going to be really interesting to see the failure analysis once the mission is, is declared dead. Uh, so we can get some answers. I mean, I can see how you can quickly eat up that lifespan pretty quickly. Yeah. Over, you know, 10 hours. I think, I think they posted this about 10 hours in. So yeah, over, yeah, 10 hours rather than, you know, the 10 minutes of landing. Okay. So now I want to talk more about your question. It's, it's not exactly, it's not exactly your question, but it, it's where we're going to get into it. So I have a, a question of my own. How do you estimate the lifespan of a vehicle if it's got a propellant leak? So at any moment, you can get a, an instantaneous level on your propellant, like how much propellant is in the tank. And obviously it's not quite as easy as just, you know, um, pressing a button, uh, because the propellant is floating around in the tank and, you know, you have to look at sensors and, and have the, you know, these techniques that you've figured out to be able to do it. But essentially at any moment, you can see what the level of propellant is in your tanks. Once you do that a couple of times over a period of time, get a couple of readings over a period of time. Well, then you get a leak rate, right? The, the change of, of the level of propellant over time, over time. And once you have that leak rate, you could just divide out the amount of propellant that you have over the leak rate and say, okay, well, this is when we're going to run out of propellant. But of course, as the pressure in the oxidizer tank drops, the amount of fuel leaking or the amount of uh, oxidizer leaking out is going to decrease as well. And so you can look at the leak rate and do some quick physics calculations and come up with not only how much propellant we have right now, how quickly we're losing propellant right now, but an expectation uh, or, or a prediction of how that leak is going to progress over time. What's really interesting is that their initial estimates were saying something like, we have 20 hours left before we're out of propellant. And, uh, and therefore, we're going to be out of sunlight, right? And as their prediction or as time goes on, they keep issuing these predictions. And at first they're keeping up with the progression of time. So, you know, we'll be there in an hour and then half an hour later, we'll be there in an hour. Um, so the, the failure point gets pushed forward at the same rate as time is flowing forward. I'm saying this in the weirdest way possible. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but then, uh, as time went on, their estimate actually started getting pushed farther and farther forward. So one estimate, they'd be saying, we have 30 hours left. And the next estimate, they'd be saying, we have 32, 35 hours left. And that's weird. Um, and they said that they don't know why their estimates are so wrong, but they suspect that the rupture is actually closing up on its own. And I think this is another indication that this is likely a rupture at a seam. And if they knew what that rupture looked like really well, I think they might be able to uh, exacerbate 
this this issue um kind of the the wrong <laughs> that's a negative i want like a positive but they could they could exploit this uh this reduction in in the rate of leakage uh because i'm betting that it's a temperature difference that's causing the metals to shift and i bet that if they pointed the spacecraft at just the right angle they could get you know one side to heat up and the other side to cool down and they could squeeze that gap closed even a little more who knows if that's even an attitude that's available to them given where the the solar panels are but yeah like your your question was how are they able to fly at all if they lost all their oxidizer and the answer is, well, they didn't lose all their oxidizer like you suspected, but they actually stopped losing oxidizer <laughs> faster than they thought they were going to, which is really neat. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was my suspicion that they didn't lose it all because otherwise this just wouldn't be possible, but I was just kind of <laughs> right. putting the question forward. Yeah. But um, I think that the other possibility, uh, although I think the one that you said is probably more likely, but also maybe it just might be that as the pressure decreases, maybe the seam kind of, you know, bends back into place, like the tank can kind of, you know, slightly contract. Yeah, that, that's a possibility. I mean, I wouldn't think about it in, in terms of like holding uh, a screen door open, but more like, uh, you know, squeezing the sides of a soda can and having a, a leak, you know, having a gap open and close while mm-hmm. you're pressing uh, on the can from totally, you know, like the sides rather than right on the, on the leak. And I think, I think that's also reasonable. I mean, if, if the tank ruptured due to high pressure, it probably deformed a little bit. And as that deformation slackens down, yeah, that gap could be closing up. I think that's actually a really reasonable hypothesis. So Chevy in the chat asks, do you know if there are any serial or parallel redundant valves being developed or used in the space industry, given that there are so many valve-related mission failures? And I've definitely seen some propellant layouts that do add some redundant valves, but I think the problem is that valves can fail open or closed. If they're closed, then running them uh, parallel is great. If, if one closes, you just open another one. But if they fail open, then you would really want a serial setup so that if one fails open, you just close the other one. So yeah, exactly. You would need both. And so like that's like four valves minimum for a problem that you really hope doesn't happen at all. I think, I think really what we need is better valves. Like we need to understand why they fail. And put our engineering at that point rather than quadrupling the mass uh, of every critical valve on a vehicle. But, you know, maybe we could develop lightweight valves that, that maybe are a little less trustworthy, but by, by quadrupling them, you, you get more reliability. Um, Chubby then asks, are, are they so heavy that you have to worry about it? I don't know, but I think that just running the plumbing could be heavy. So maybe, a quadruply redundant valve all in the same housing might do the trick, but then you have, you know, really heavy housing. But yeah, I agree. It's, it is kind of odd how many spacecraft missions are totally happy with a single point of failure device and like a bunch of them. Um, so I have seen some redundancy in, in some propellant layouts, but, but it's not, it's not super duper common. This specifically seems to happen with launches of things into space, but this is not because the conditions are that extreme, right? Uh, cause I can imagine a lot of things here on Earth. I think it is somewhat due to the conditions, but there's another factor that I think is at least equally important. Which is just the, the mass, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. On Earth, we build really, 
really robust valves, right? Like, like I think that some of the most critical uh, valves that we build are like sewage valves. They have to deal with solids and liquids. Um, we bury them underground and we really, really need them to work every single time. <laughs> we <laughs> never want them to fail uh, because they're, they're very bad consequences. And so like those are some of the best valves, but they're also huge. Quick shout out. One of my favorite YouTube channels is Practical Engineering. Uh, it's a guy named Brady out in uh, San Antonio, Texas, and he's a civil engineer. And so he has been doing these wonderful uh, engineering videos where sometimes he's building demos in his garage. Sometimes he's just doing animations, but it's the the best way to appreciate some of the civil engineering feats that we've accomplished as a species. Uh, most of them are U.S.-based projects, but uh, he's mostly looking at stuff at such a low level that it kind of applies to everywhere. Um, but like he did an analysis of the Oroville Dam failure, which is like a really big ish, a really big incident for me because I. I was there, right? Like I wasn't in the flood zone. I wasn't evacuated, but I had, like I sent a coworker into Oroville during the, uh, during the evacuation. Like I called the state police and got special permission for him to go into the, the area. And like, I know a lot of people that were displaced, like it, you know, it really was a big deal. And so it was very cool to see uh, a civil engineer go work over those issues uh, or over that incident. And so um, he did a series recently looking at a sewage pump being installed. It's the channel is normally called practical engineering. He called this practical construction and it was like a multi-month documentary of this one piece of infrastructure being built. And that, that's why sewage valves comes to mind so readily right now, but it's, it's very good. You should, you should go and watch it and see what really high reliability valves look like when they're being installed. Delta V in the chat says that some uh, expensive sats do actually uh, replicate the whole set of thrusters, pipes, and valves, uh, mounting each of their their thruster nozzles in pairs. And like, yeah, that is a lot more common um, to just duplicate everything. But it's interesting. This is a helium valve issue, and so even if you had two parallel valves, which I think would probably be more common, in this case, it's it's failing open, which that wouldn't have, wouldn't have helped. And that's like, it's such a complex system. Like on one level, it's really simple, but on another, there's just so many places where it can fail. So I, I think it'll be interesting if we, maybe we need to get a, uh, a valve engineer on the show and ask them what the future of valves could look like. Uh, Cause I think, I think it'll be interesting to see if we come up with new valve, not methodology, not, not whole technology, but like if, if we find, techniques that, that give us more reliable valves. Okay, that's that's my uh, Peregrine coverage. All right, so let's do two short and sweets. This week, one for each of us. Uh, ben, what's the first? All right, first up, layoffs at JPL. 
The Jet Propulsion Laboratory laid off 100 contractors last week as a result of budget uncertainties regarding the Mars Sample Return Program. The federal funding of the program for 2024 is currently being decided between the House and the Senate, the latter only willing to allocate $300 million of the full $949.3 million that was requested. Currently, the MSR program is operating under a continuing resolution wherein JPL receives 2023 levels of funding. However, in order to avoid a worst-case scenario where JPL only receives a fraction of the requested funding for 2024, while still operating on a 2023 budget, it is decided to perform layoffs in advance. And then next up, uh, next up and finally, Starship's second flight failure explained. SpaceX has released details on Starship's second orbital attempt in November of last year. Starship failed to reach orbit due to an intentional venting of excess liquid oxygen. During the venting, the liquid oxygen was ignited, though no details were given as to exactly what triggered the explosion. This launch did not include a payload, which is what accounts for the excess locks. Though during a normal launch to orbit, this would not be necessary. According to SpaceX, the next launch attempt is projected to be in February and will include the testing of propellant tank transfer as well as the payload bay doors. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we have a correction from Espen Erkdahl. And this was uh, regarding episode 440, which I believe was just me and Dennis, and we were talking about that Falcon 9 booster that didn't quite make it back to port. Uh, It had tipped over at some point during the voyage, and apparently, I guess... I don't remember this, but we did go back and listen to it. And uh, apparently Dennis had said that the legs of the Falcon 9 or that the new ones uh, that are being built, this had flown, what, 19 times? I think this was one of the record-holding ones. So this is a fairly old booster. But the newer ones, they have what are called dynamic stabilization or something like that. I don't remember the exact wording. But basically, they are able to self-correct and keep the rocket pointing straight up. And so what Dennis said was um, it was old enough that they didn't bother upgrading it with the dynamic landing legs that can adjust for the uneven shaking and swaying of the return ship. And so I guess that wording is yeah. ambiguous enough to me because, I mean, he's not saying that necessarily that these are like, you know, actively compensating for, you know, the motion of the waves and so forth, which is something that they cannot do. And so we got that yeah. correction to let us know yeah. that that's the case. Yeah, it's it's a one-time adjustment on landing, like – it balances the pressure between all four legs. And I think if you say uneven shaking and swaying of the return ship, that has, that's not accounted for with these, these upgraded landing legs. It's, um, when you land hard and at an angle, it will adjust the legs to get the pressure even. And it's like a one time kind of instantaneous thing that works once and then stops. And I, I I don't know how intense it is, but I suspect it's uh, essentially redesigned crush core uh, that crushes a little bit to start out with. Like I'm sure it's a it's a little more uh, complicated than that, but it's um, it's definitely not something that can compensate for dynamic loading. Right? It's just you land, we're going to get the thing pointed straight up, and then that's it. So how would the redesigned crush core compensate? for an off nominal landing. It, it would I'm I'm not saying it's redesigned crush core. I'm saying like it basically acts like that, almost like a uh like a damping system. Um so like the most complicated it could be would be like uh pneumatic actuators uh that are interconnected so that the pressure uh, high pressure in one leg bleeds off into the other three legs. Mm-hmm. Um but I, I doubt that they're actually interconnected like that. I think 
um, once they lock in the open position, when they hit the deck, they're allowed to retract. Well, we know that they're allowed to retract because of the crush core is basically what that's doing. Um, but I think there's a little bit of extra, uh, damping or, or like late stage crush that happens so that once that initial impact is done and it's settled on all four legs, if one leg is experiencing more pressure than expected, it will rebound a little bit or, you know, something like that. Uh, to push the the balance onto the other three. I don't think that they're interconnected. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't think so either. Do you think that maybe what they do, the other, like if the center of gravity is sort of like tilting over the one leg, right? So that means that there would be more pressure on that one leg, I think. Then maybe the other three actually vent a little bit of whatever it is that holds those things open. And so they can kind of, you know, compensate by like lowering slightly. I mean, yeah. not too much, but that seems like a simpler solution. Yeah. It's it's either the the leg that the weight is over extends itself and the other ones stay the same so that that side pushes up and it pushes the center of gravity over. Or the center of gravity stays still and the other legs sag uh, and press down on the deck right. a little more, keeping it off balance. But, you know, that way it's not going to it's not going to tip backwards. And, yeah, I, I don't know what the system looks like, but I, I don't think that the legs are interconnected. And um, from the descriptions, I think we can pretty clearly – uh, agree with Espen's correction here and say, yeah, they, it's not going to, it's not going to adapt to uneven shaking and swaying. Uh, maybe one day, but probably yeah. not. Yeah. That'd be kind of cool to see a Falcon 9 booster kind of, you know, a gyroscopically stabilized uh, like system there. All right. So moving on to this week in spaceflight history, we have just three winners. We have a correct answer from Uncle Willie and then two correct answers with the bonus points from the Greek and Psychile. And the clue was the there of there and back again. And I honestly had no idea what this was about, uh, except maybe going to somewhere in space. <laughs> That's a reasonable guess. But uh, what was the there? Yeah, it was it was actually going into space. That's exactly right. All right. This week in spaceflight history is the 19th of January, 1965. It was the launch of Gemini Titan 2. This was the second flight of the Gemini program, as you might be able to guess from the number in the title. This was an uncrewed test, um, and they were going to be flying this vehicle in a suborbital trajectory, mostly to look at how the vehicle reacted under reentry heating. And so they picked, uh, even though this is a suborbital trajectory and not a return from an orbital trajectory. They were still able to uh, pick a trajectory that gave them the uh, a heating that was similar to the maximum amount of heating that they would see on reentry. And so basically, they're just cutting into the atmosphere earlier and uh, and getting into dense atmosphere and, and heating up quicker. The main thing that they were looking at was the heat protection system. So that's the ablative main heat shield. Uh, but there are also, um, Renee 41 shingles that, that surround the base. These are, instead of being ablative, they are shingles that heat up and cool the vehicle down by dumping, uh, infrared light out of the vehicle, essentially cooling down your vehicle by heating up distant galaxies. Uh, so there are, the material, they had two different materials that they used. There was Renee, uh, 41 at the base and then beryllium shingles uh, at the top. And I can't imagine that it's pure beryllium, but hey, maybe. Um, underneath those shingles, they had, um, a ceramic insulation called Min K. Uh, the company's actually still around. They still make at least a, uh, 
a child version of Minkay, um, and then also thermal blankets. So they wanted to make sure that all of these things protected the vehicle uh, during the most heat that they would expect to see. They also wanted to look at the structural integrity, presumably the structural integrity as the vehicle was heated. They also wanted to check the you know overall systems performance of the vehicle. Um, they did a communications test, and they also were looking at the cryogenics, the fuel cells, and the reactant supply system, which you know very on topic for this week's show. Um, of course. Uh, nothing is perfect. And so they actually didn't get any data back from the fuel cells uh, because the fuel cell system failed before the launch and they turned it off. So they weren't expecting to get anything back from it anyway. Um, and then, of course, this is uh, a relatively early flight of Titan. And so they're like, yeah, the more qualification data we can get on the Titan vehicle, the better. So that's that's all good. And even though this was a suborbital test, they still fired the reentry engines. They had the the vehicle jettison the uh, the protective shroud, flip over, and burn the engines. Kind of ran through that whole cycle. So the clue is the there of there and back again. And what makes this vehicle notable is not its launch. Uh, during Gemini 2. What actually makes this capsule notable is its launch on November 3rd, 1966, uh, the following year. Normally, we would pick that launch as this week in spaceflight history uh, event, but it went into our document uh, on its first launch. So I had to be a little, a little tricksy with the clue, but the there of there and back again. So this was the first vehicle to enter space twice since X-15 had uh, been the, the first to do it. Uh, I mean, multiple times, obviously. And it would actually stay the only vehicle, or I guess it would remain the, the most recent vehicle to have returned to space twice until shuttle came along. Um, so ki- kind of, it, it seems like a really simple thing. Like it's, yeah, it's not the first reuse. It's not, the most notable reuse like shuttle, but it is notable in that it was sort of isolated in time. It was this one time that we did this thing. Unfortunately, they were both suborbital flights. So reuse on an orbital vehicle is, is still reserved uh, for shuttle unless I'm wrong. For the second flight, it was actually uh, not refurbished and uh, built back up to its original condition. It was actually upgraded to the Gemini B configuration. Uh, which is very similar except for one very large difference. Uh, and that's the hatch in the middle of the heat shield, right? MOL, the manned orbiting laboratory, uh, was intended to fly a Gemini 2 on top of a laboratory module. You'd go into space and then you'd climb down through the bottom of your Gemini and go into the laboratory and take all the spy photos that you were going to take and whatever, and then crawl back up into the capsule and land. And then the, the laboratory would deorbit. They weren't going to go dock with it again. And of course, MOL, the MOL program got canceled pretty quickly and we never actually did this mission, but that, that a heat shield with a door in it is, uh, Definitely a choice that you uh, have to make. And so this was one of the things they were doing to try and justify uh, that system as, as actually working. And as far as I understand, there didn't look like there were going to be any problems uh, with, with that heat shield failing. The The main heat shield was a, a little bigger in diameter, but 
I mean, I think if, I think you'd have to have two, uh, Gemini vehicles sitting next to each other to really be able to tell the difference. Gemini B also had a new cockpit layout and a couple of new instruments. But I think one of the most interesting things to me is that, uh, Gemini B was designed after the Apollo 1 pad fire. And as such, it had fire in mind, like fire safety. And so they actually reverted to an atmosphere configuration that was on the table before they settled on the all oxygen atmosphere of Apollo and of Gemini. So what they were looking at doing was using a helium oxygen atmosphere. And that's not particularly interesting uh, in that We've done helium oxygen atmospheres in space before, and we use them uh, in the deep sea. But what I think is really weird is that the astronauts would have to, I guess they weren't pre-breathing oxygen. They just switched to uh, pure oxygen atmospheres, but only inside their suits. And then there was pure helium pressurizing the capsule. So that's the configuration at launch. And then maybe they were going to do a bleed out uh, on ascent like Apollo ended up doing. Uh, but I think they uh, they would just get into orbit and then switch their atmosphere over, get some oxygen into the capsule, and they could take off their suits. I, I think that's really bizarre just as a, a reaction to a pad fire as well. You know, the ignition source was behind the console or behind the seats, you know, it was tucked into the near the edge of the capsule, not right next to the astronauts. But like, it still seems like an odd thing to go, okay, well, let's just put all the oxygen right here next to these flammable humans. But I, I think obviously this, this is safer than having uh, O2 mm-hmm. everywhere. And then, yeah, uh, it was launched again, this time on a Titan 3C and did its suborbital trajectory and was recovered and everything went great. So there you go. That's this week in spaceflight history. There you go. That might be the shortest this week in spaceflight history ever. <laughs> ah, record. Cool. Okay. Well, let's uh, move on then to next week. So the date range for next week's clue is going to be the 23rd through the 29th of January. And do you have a clue for us on behalf of Dennis? Yes, I do. On behalf of Dennis. Next week in 1986, the clue is cheaper by the almost dozen. So if you have a guess as to what that clue is referencing, you can give us an email at info at the orbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon and use the hashtag thisweekSF or or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord for an invite to the discord server and type slash TWSF to hand your guest directly to our Tombot. And good luck. Good luck, everybody. Moving right along then to upcoming spaceflight events. I think there's just uh, three of those, but they are all three launches. And thank you to Launch Library 2, which is where we start our research each week. All right. First up is a Long March 7 launching Tianjo 7. This is the sixth cargo uh, delivery mission to the Chinese space station. That's going to be launching out of Wenchang on Wednesday, January 17th, sometime between 14, 17 hours UTC and 14, 34 hours UTC. And then after that, on January 17th, we have the Axiom Space Mission 3. So uh, this is cool. This is a crew dragon flight for the private company Axiom Space. Uh, yeah, this is the third one um, launching on a Falcon 9 Block 5. So the crew for this commanded by Michael Lopez Alegria. The pilot is uh, Walter Villaday. The mission specialist one uh, is Alper Gezeravci, I think. I'm not sure how to pronounce that one. And mission specialist two is Marcus Want. So the launch window for this is January 17th. 
2211 UTC, launching from KSC from Launch Complex 39A. So uh, good luck. And uh, you can also watch the uh, rendezvous and docking of that with uh, the ISS. Coverage for that starts on NASA TV at 3.30 a.m. Eastern Time. And then the actual docking is scheduled for 5.15 a.m. So I guess, yeah, a couple hours leading up to that. But you yep. can check that one out. And then the last launch that we have this week is a Rocket Lab Electron flying four of a kind. This is the North Star 1 mission. Uh, so four situational awareness satellites uh, for the company North Star Earth and Space. That's going to be flying on Thursday, January 18th, between 06, 15 hours UTC and 700 hours UTC. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. So that means it's time to do about the show. And we would like to thank Ron Jinkies and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. p.m. and 12 p.m. Eastern. And thank you so much to Mike Chubby, Chris S., PsyCow, Delta V, Doflarity, and L110 underscore, uh, <laughs> and L110 uh, for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show, please tell a friend or better yet, leave us a review you listen you can also visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our patreon campaign and affiliate links and get in touch find links to our mailing list discord server a mastodon account at the orbitalmechanics.com slash support or you can just skip all that by emailing info at the orbitalmechanics.com so that's it we'll see you all on orbit next week until then later goodbye everyone.